Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Man alive. All right. Well, I hope everyone had a great Christmas. I was actually doing the math before uh, service. I realized in the last week we have seen a disparity of about 100 degrees of different temperatures between wind chills and everything. That just still blows my mind. Megan and I have a friend of ours here from Augusta, Georgia, and the week before he came, I, I, I sent him a picture of the weather we're having, we had last week, and he said he was really thankful he was not here this, that week. And I completely understand. So, um, excuse me. Like Pastor Mike, I'm going to do this coughing. I've been uh, dealing with that since the end of November, which has been fun. But um, I don't know about you, but my family, anytime they get together, and that makes me think of Christmas time now, anytime we get together, it doesn't matter if it is even Christmas or if it's just sitting around the, the, the campfire on the summer uh, a camping trip, we, we always tend to start telling stories of the past. And um, there's... There's one particular story that my sister loves to tell about me, and she, she somehow manages to always lovingly work it in every time. And it's the story of elementary school Craig at Christmas time. And the idea of this is that Christmas morning, I'm lying in bed, and I decided I can't wait. I'm getting up, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is like, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And I, I decided I couldn't wait any longer, so I'm going to get up, sneak into the living room, and just behold the wonder that is Christmas. Um, and in our house, we, have this, we had this tradition that, you know, we often had just this one big gift with a lot, of, a lot of other smaller gifts, and that one big gift was always unwrapped. And so as I walk in, there is my one big gift unwrapped, a brand new fire truck that makes all the noises, does the ladder, does the remote control, everything. And um, I, I wasn't content with just seeing it. Well, let's just say after playing for a while and opening my gifts, I realized it's probably time for me to get back to bed before somebody else wakes up and realizes what I've done. Well, I try, again, elementary school Craig, trying to wrap gifts again and try to erase the noises that he was making was not going to end well. Well, everybody woke up, and that, that, that morning, clearly my family knew. They told me, clearly by the wrapping and all the noise, they knew exactly what had happened. And I was ashamed, and my sister does not fail to bring that up every time. But our lives are full of firsthand stories. And firsthand stories being this idea of stories from people that were there at the event. And this week, we're starting a series where we're looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And the Gospels paint this picture of Jesus' life on earth through firsthand stories. So, for example, like each New Testament Gospel writer was either with Jesus on his earthly ministry or got firsthand stories from someone who was. For example, like John and Matthew were disciples of Jesus. They were with him through his entire ministry. And Luke and Mark got theirs from firsthand stories. Like Mark got his from Peter and Luke got his from actually interviewing eyewitnesses. And so um, today's passage is, is one of those, one of those that Luke did where he collected this story from an eyewitness. So if you would turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're looking at verses uh, 41 to 52. And if you just want to sort of place your finger there for a sec. Because we're going to explore this unique single story from the early life of Jesus. In fact, it's the only story, early story, from the life of Jesus. So essentially what Pastor Mike has had me do is preach the first 30 years of Jesus' life. So I hope you guys enjoy this. 
it won't be that long, I promise. <clears throat> but Luke spent the first chapter and a half of his gospel giving us evidence, giving us the reader evidence that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is God in the flesh. And in Luke's purpose in our passage in telling us this story today is to help us understand that Jesus knew it too, that Jesus understood it too. And so let's, let's dive in there. Let's, let's check out chapter 2, starting with verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking that he was in their company, they traveled, for, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to look, they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in his heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Father, your word is, is indispensable. You reveal yourself to us through it by your spirit. And God, may you guide us in our discussion, guide us in our learning, guide us in our understanding, I pray. Amen. Well, verses 41 and 42, we get this great picture <clears throat> of, of Jesus' parents celebrating the Passover, which, which was a requirement of the law that all Jewish men ha- should go to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover every year. Over time, women would begin to join them as well, and Jews from all over the world would descend into Jerusalem and participate. It was a time where where Jews were supposed to reflect and remember God's faithfulness to them as he rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. And the celebration of the Passover, which was about a day, was supposed to be followed by seven more days of a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which served to remind the Jews of God's faithfulness to the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness after they left Egypt. And for those doing the math, that's eight days. I almost put seven up, but that's eight days. That is eight days of celebrating. For families like Joseph and Mary, that's a huge commitment. I think for each of us, we could say that's a huge commitment to be away from home for eight days to do this celebration. And and here's the crazy thing. It's not just eight days, because that doesn't even include the four days it takes to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem and the four days back. And we've got to remember, Joseph was a carpenter. Many folks at this time, when they worked that day, they worked enough and they earned enough to eat that day and maybe a little bit to set aside. So this was a huge commitment for them. And, and that's kind of Luke's purpose in telling us this. He, he's, he's trying to make it clear that Jesus' parents were all in on this. 
They were all in, committed to God and his law, not only with their own lives, but with their parenting as well. Not only did they worship God rightly and sacrificially, but they also brought up their children to do the same thing. Look, look at this. Notice that Jesus comes when he's 12 years old, right? In the Jewish culture at age 13, it's like this time when the Jewish boy is considered what they call the son of, a co- of the covenant. Essentially what that means is that he would be responsible for following the law and making sacrifices on his own. And so what, what, would, what would happen is it would be common for parents to bring their 11 or 12-year-old son to the Passover to help them understand what it is they're getting ready to do, what, what it means to step into what they would call adulthood. And so Jesus' parents are doing this with him. They are setting him up to step into his faith. And I, I love that. But then we get to verse 43 through 46, which is something that no parent wants to have that experience. Unknowingly leaving your child behind. So at this time, folks are traveling in large groups, usually consisting of friends and families. And so it was common for kids to be either together with parents or somewhere with relatives or something like that. I know growing up as a kid, we would have a big family, big extended family in our home church. And after church, we would have lunch. Well, we wouldn't necessarily go in our parents' car. We would go maybe in a cousin's car or something like that. And so this is that same idea. Is they, they trusted that Jesus was in the community that was walking. And when his parents discovered that Jesus was missing, I, I have this picture in my head of the movie Home Alone where Kate McAllister does that scream in the middle of the airport and then she passes out when she realizes that she left her nine-year-old son at home? That's, that's what I picture Mary going through her head when she realizes this. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go, 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 go on, get on YouTube and find this video because it, it, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. And so in their, in their, in their, in their, in their concern, they start the journey back. And, and, our, and our passage says that it takes three days. And it's probably something like this. Day one, they're walking home before they realize. Day two, walking back to Jerusalem. And then day three, searching and finding Jesus. So it's not like Jesus was literally away from his parents for six days at that point. It was probably just one day, one day walking, one day returning, one day searching. So if any of us um, <laughs> have had that experience, I, I, I think you can imagine what's going through their heads. But we find that they find him in the temple and that they are amazed at the sight that they see. Jesus sitting with the teachers of the law, learning, asking, answering, growing. Those, were, those around them were amazed as well because he was understanding and he was able to have full-on conversation. And, and verse 48 tells us that Joseph and Mary were amazed too. And then Mary approaches Jesus. And I... I I don't think that we should hear her comments so much as a reprimand, as as a relief, if that makes sense. If any of us has lost a a child in the store or something like that, we can sympathize with Mary's heart of, of fear and concern, but also that heart of relief when they found, right? So that's that's that idea that that's how we need to approach the question that she's asking. It's just that feeling of relief. And so her words aren't anger. Her words aren't, aren't, aren't just, just, oh, I can't believe you do this. It's a, ah. Oh. Does that make sense? And so Jesus responds to her in verse 49 with, I, I know often I, I heard this in a, like, a, a 
unconcerned or cold way. But in studying this week, I began to realize this isn't an unconcerned, cold response that Jesus is giving. This, why were you looking for me? We, we, we shouldn't hear it that way. In fact, what he's doing here is actually he's alerting her and us, the reader, that what he's about to say is something really important. The same kind of thing happens in Luke 24 when the women were going to Jesus' tomb to, to, to take care of him on the third day after his crucifixion. And it says that two men were standing there by the ladies, and they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they go on to say, he, th that is Jesus, he's not here. He has risen. This, this question that, the, that they're asking the ladies isn't about the question. It's, it's saying, listen, I'm about to tell you something really important. He is risen. And so it gets their mind ready to hear and then the important piece. And so that's what Jesus is doing. Why are you looking for me? He's alerting Mary that he's about to tell her something extremely important about himself. He says, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And there's so much that, that is right there in those few words that we could spend weeks on. But for today, I want us to see that Jesus, in saying this, knew exactly who he was, and he knew what his purpose was. Notice that he says this. He says that he, needed, he had to be in his, what, father's house. Do we remember where Jesus is standing? He's standing in the courts of the temple, the house of God. In saying this, he is claiming that he is the son of God, that God is his father. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity. He's claiming that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is both God and human. And I don't mean like when you order a pizza, you get half cheese, half pepperoni. I don't mean that's the person of Jesus. I mean, he's 100% God and 100% human. And I, I want to take some time here and stop in our, in, our, in our narrative to sort of unpack what that means, to be 100% God, all God, but also all man. And what, is that, what does that mean for us? Well, to start off with, we have to be completely honest with ourselves. We won't be able to fully understand this on this side of eternity. And we need to be okay with that. And that is okay. Most of us don't understand the details that go into the braking system on our car, but we still trust it, right? That's okay. There's a lot that we can understand about Jesus' nature, though. And I, again, I won't go into everything, but I want to hit just a few things. Number one, Jesus was a man, which means he had a human body. Jesus, as we just finished celebrating, was physically born. Like all humans, he grew through childhood into adulthood. At times, he became hungry. At times, he was thirsty. He was physically weak in the wilderness and on the cross. But Jesus also had a human mind. At the end of today's passage, we actually see that Luke tells us that Jesus had to go through normal human learning processes to grow. That means he had to grow in wisdom and knowledge. 
Jesus also, this, this, is, this is good news for a lot of us, Jesus also had human emotion. Jesus felt real human emotion. Before his crucifixion, he actually says this. He says, his soul was troubled. A, a more modern way that we would use that word today is he was saying he was anxious. He was stressed. He also said that his soul was sorrowful. When his friend Lazarus died, he was crying. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. He had these human emotions just like you and I. And here's something even better. Jesus also experienced the full range of human temptation. Hebrews, full te- excuse me, Hebrews 4 tells us that in every respect, Jesus had been tempted just like we are, yet he was without sin. He was tempted just like us. He experienced the same pull to sin that you and I do, but he didn't sin. Which leads me to my last thing. That's, that's kind of the kicker right here. Jesus was tempted to sin, but he was sinless. And the, the only difference between Jesus and us with our humanity is that he was without sin. And here's the thing that, that blows my mind. I, I spent, I don't know how long talking to Pastor David about this in the, in the office the other day. He did it with human strength. You see, Jesus had the power to obey God in his divine strength, but it was necessary that he did it in his human strength because it was the only way he could live the sinless life we could not. It's, the only, it's only when he resisted temptation in his human strength that Jesus could take on the sins of humanity. Only through the breaking of his perfect body and the spilling of his sinless blood could our sins be get forgiven once and for all. He did that for our salvation. And that is good news. Jesus had to be 100% man. But he was also 100% God. You see, the Gospel of John opens like this. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word, Jesus, was with God, and the word was God. He's saying there that Jesus was there in the beginning, before anything else in creation. Before it all, Jesus was there, and he is God. And then he goes on later in verse 14 to say this, that the word, Jesus, became flesh and lived on earth. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Jesus was God. There, there are a few things we can see in the, in the scriptures of, of how we know that Jesus is God. Number one is this, that he had power over creation. Jesus had power over creation. He calmed the storm. He walked on the water. He changed water into wine. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He had power over creation. But not only that, he had sovereign authority over everything. Jesus had the authority over all things, including the authority to forgive sins, which is something that only God can do. The, the last thing I want us to see, and this is the big one for, for, for God, is that Jesus being fully God means that he has the inability to die. 
Now, I know that sounds confusing, right? I just said Jesus was human and that he died. But, but listen how he says it in John chapter 10. He says, for, the, for this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus tells us that he has the authority to choose to die, and then the authority to raise himself up from the dead. When Jesus died, we can be sure that he died. Excuse me. Not only were Romans really skilled at cruel punishments, like the cross that Jesus hung on, they were also really good about making sure that you were dead before they brought you down. You see, the two, sold, or the two uh, uh, criminals on this, either side of Jesus, they broke their legs so that it would cause them to suffocate to make sure they were dead. But when they got to Jesus, they didn't have to do that. They could visibly see that they, he was already dead. But just to make sure, they took a pike and drove it through his body. And by the description that we see of the blood and the water that comes out, we know that it hits the heart. Jesus was dead, <laughs> and they made sure of it because he was 100% man. But three days later, though, and here's the point, three days later, Jesus raised from the grave because he was 100% God. And in raising from the dead, he conquered sin. He conquered death once and for all, assuring us that those of us who believe on him will raise to life as well. That's good news, too. So let's put it all together. Jesus is both fully God and fully human, Fully human in that he was born, he grew, had a human mind and emotions, and he died. And when he was tempted, like us, he he, he, he didn't sin, which is why he could die for us. But he's also fully God, powerful, sovereign, immortal, able to be raised to life again, conquering sin and death once and for all. This is Jesus. This is the nature of Jesus. Praise God for his plan of redemption through the gospel of Jesus. And, and we, we get these, in the last couple of verses, we get these, these, these two verses that sort of wrap this up. As he says in verse, looking at verse 51, then Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Talking about his parents now. But his mother treasured up all those things in his heart, in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Three quick things. Number one, Jesus, the infinite Son of God, with infinite power and authority, submitted himself to his earthly parents. Let that sink in for a sec. Then Luke, in the end of verse 15, when Luke gives us this tiny detail that it's probably Mary that gave him the story, because she, he, was, he, she was, he was talking about how she remembered these things. And then our, our passage closes simply out with this. Jesus grew for 18 years. And that's okay. That's okay because the point Luke was making is that he wanted to make sure that we understood that Jesus knew who he was. But what do we do with it? What do we take from this? And there is a lot that we could, but I, I've got two takeaways for us. Number one is simply this. Are you committed to Christ? Remember, Joseph and Mary committed valuable time, money, effort, and resource in their relationship with God. This, 
this, this understanding that, there was, that they spent 16 days away from home, away from work, away from what they needed to do just to celebrate this feast, this should burden us a little bit to ask the question, how much time and effort and money and all of that do I commit to my faith? And then even further, how much do I commit to making sure I raise my kids and point them to Christ? Joseph and Mary did that. So I, I, I love that we're starting a new year today. This is a great opportunity for us to ask the questions, ask ourselves questions about our relationship with Christ. How's your quiet time, including prayer? Are you growing in your love for God's word? Are you doing, or how are you doing in loving your neighbor as yourself? Can you see the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Take some time. Examine your relationship with Christ. If there's something, if, 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 if it's something that we should all be doing, and if, if there's weakness, pray for strengthening. Where there's failure and sin, come to the throne of grace with repentance, knowing of the assurance of forgiveness and strength to move forward. Take that time. Ask yourself, how is my commitment to Christ? How is my family's commitment to their faith? The second thing I want us to see is this. Jesus submitted to his parents. I say this to teens and preteens in the room from the bottom of my heart and the love that I have for you. Jesus, the Son of God, the ultimate power, ruler in this universe and authority over all, our creator and our sustainer, submitted to his earthly parents because it's right and good to do. If Jesus himself submitted to his earthly parents, shouldn't you? Your parents did not pay me to say that. But in all truthfulness, in as much as you were not asked to violate the word of God, should you not submit to your parents? I would not be a loving, good co-discipler and youth pastor with your parents if I did not challenge you on this. But don't worry, the parents have their challenge too. Adults and teens, hi. Here's what I need you guys to hear. You don't get away. And teens, you too, even on this other realm. Insofar as you are not asked to violate the word of God, do you submit to your boss? Do you submit to the law, the governing authorities over you? Do you submit to the word of God? If we're asking our kids to submit to us, do you think they need that example? I forgot to say it first, but I'll say it for everyone. This is something we need to hear. Know that God is full of grace when you make a mistake. Use God's grace to honor him more and more as you become more and more obedient to him. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful the word of God gives us the gospels to know Jesus I'm so thankful that it brings us the good news of the work that he has done and the gospel that he presents. And I'm so thankful that God calls us out of the sin, calls us out of the mire, and he sets us up and he presents to us a new 
way to live. Let's pray. Father, you, your word is good. You are faithful, you are loving, you are full of grace and mercy, yet you are also holy, but you don't leave us in our sin. God, you provide a way out through the gospel. Father, humble us, lead us, guide us, and may we know your son better and better, I pray. Amen.